Continuing on in Isaiah, it's prophecy concerning the servant of the Lord. Verse 10, Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Let's pray. Our Father, your word will abide forever. The glory of man is like grass, and even in the most glorious estate, we're like the flower of the field, and the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. And Lord, by this word we've been taught, we've been taught of your will, a will that we could have never guessed. We could have never come to this knowledge apart from it being revealed to us. So thank you for the Holy Spirit's work of revealing the scriptures, revealing Christ to us, teaching us of our sin, teaching us of our depravity and of your right to judge us, and and yet teaching us of your grace to provide for us a lamb. When we were like sheep going astray, he was the lamb led to the slaughter. Silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. He went willingly, Father, and for that he won for us our salvation. So thank you that your will prospered in the servant's suffering. I pray that our Lord, this servant, your servant, Jesus Christ, would be exalted in this service in our hearts together today. In Jesus' name, amen. In our text of all the paradoxes we've seen thus far in this fourth and final servant psalm of Isaiah, Verse 10 contains, our text contains today, what must be considered as the origin of it all, the basis of it all, along with the humility of the servant in chapter 52, verses 13 through 14, it vies for the most surprising paradox or mystery of all. I say that this is the grounds. What we see in verse 10 is is sort of the grounds of all of the paradoxes, and there have been many, and I'm not going to rehearse them all. I say it's the ground because the prophet tells us something of the divine will of God in all of this. This will is not like your will. It's not bound by limitations. It's not full of variation and change. It's not subject to other people who are more powerful than you and the limits placed by them upon you. The will of God in our text today regards his unchanging, immutable eternal will, his eternal what's called the decree of God in theology, something that is not bent and cannot be turned. It's therefore the basis of the entire psalm, what we'll consider today explicitly, the will of God. The prophet is only disclosing the will of God here throughout this entire psalm. He's only either disclosing it or revealing it as it's foretold Throughout the psalm, the whole thing regards the will of God. But today we see explicitly what the will of God is meant to be. But at the root of that revealed will in our text, it tells us with astonishing clarity what is falling out upon the servant of Yahweh. And that's the surprise. That's the surprise when we consider that in light of all that we've read, is that God's will is falling out upon his servant, By the hands of wicked men, and yet 
This is according to the will of God. And it's fulfilled, first of all, in Christ. The will of God fulfilled in Christ, verse 10. The beginning of verse 10. It was the will of the Lord, Yahweh, to crush him. That word crush is a very appropriate word. It shouldn't be weakened at all. It shouldn't be thought up as hurt him badly. The idea is to crush. It really puts the right frame of mind into that. What, what the Lord is doing. It was his will to crush him. He has put him to grief that has caused him pain or suffering. And a part of us wants to recoil with this announcement, doesn't it? And the more we know about who this servant is and his relationship with Yahweh, we not only gope when we read it, we might be tempted to cry out with Peter, Far be it from you, Lord. But even then Christ would respond, wouldn't he? Get thee behind me, Satan. You are not setting your minds on things of God. Unbelief looks at this and charges God with sin. Even professing Christian theologians say that we cannot have a doctrine of the atonement that sees God as the Father pouring his wrath out upon the Son For that would be cosmic child abuse. These unbelievers agree with the wisdom of the world and they cannot fathom that a loving God, a loving Father indeed, would pour His wrath upon His innocent Son. That God would cause His beloved servant in this text Indeed, his eternally beloved son in the New Testament, as it's clearly revealed, to suffer under the weight of his wrath. But faith looks on this not with accusation against God, not with pride or self-conceit, nor even self-confidence. It knows this is the revealed will of God. And it happened... Because of our sin. That's what the text has been very clear about. Verse 5 uses the same verb when it speaks about what came about upon the servant because of our sin. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, that's laying upon him, he bore this, was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. When we come to the New Testament, we are even more deeply touched by this announcement of the servant and the will of the Lord to crush him, because there we learn explicitly of the value of the Lord. It was the Lord, it was Yahweh who said from heaven, the Father said to those present, Peter and John, as Jesus was there on the Mount of Transfiguration, with Elijah and Moses. And the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son. Hear him. This is the one who's important. Moses and Elijah, they've had their time. Moses, Jesus said, spoke of me. Abraham looked forward to me, Jesus said of himself. And the Lord said, this is my son, my beloved son, 
listen to him. The measure and weight of God's will in crushing his servant is seen in the value of the servant's life. I'm reading a couple World War II books right now and talks about how soldiers, when they would go into battle, you know, they're hoorahing beforehand, and then the reality of what it means to actually take the life of another human being hits them. And before they can think about it, they're doing it. And they're seeing the lives of their friends and their comrades fall all around them, and the value of life is immediately impressed upon them. It's hard to... It's hard to describe the, the value of life and how deeply life is important to us. The scripture says that God knows, he cares, when one insignificant little bird, a sparrow, falls to the ground. God loves his creation. When we spoiled it with our sin, he cursed it, he turned it against us and promised, though, to redeem it. But the value of a sparrow pales in comparison, the Word of God says, to the value of those he created in his image. Kids, listen, listen up, kids, all the kids. You are made in the image of God. There's a lot of kids in this world. They don't think there's any value in them except for when they look in the mirror, they're told by psychologists and philosophers, you just got to find value in self-worth. Self-worth wanes and it waxes all the time in this life. You were created in God's image. You're valuable. Yet how do we speak about the value of the Son of God? We read in Colossians chapter 1 things that we cannot estimate value. He was the one through whom everything was made. The image of the incorruptible God. Very God and very man in one person. The eternal word, the Messiah. He dwelt with the Father and the Holy Spirit in eternity in love, perfect love. And so we cannot, when we come to the Son and we come and understand that the servant in Isaiah 53 verse 10 is the Son, the value of life. His life and what it meant that the Father, that the will of Yahweh was to crush him. It was Yahweh's will to crush him, to put him to grief. We often don't rightly estimate the love of the Father towards the Son. We see it throughout Scripture. We see it so clearly. And yet this baffles our mind. It was his will to put him to grief, sorrow. And what was the basis of his will? 
Secondly, I believe it was the love of God revealed in his sacrifice. Ten, in the middle of the verse, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, guilt offering references back to Leviticus chapter 5, especially verses 14 through 19 and, and following. But this is translated in various ways, this phrase, when his soul makes an offering for guilt. It's also translated, when thou shalt make his offering for sin. And you can see the difference, can't you? When you shall make an offering or make his soul an offering for sin, takes Yahweh and makes him the one offering up the servant. In our translation, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, should be taken as the servant himself offering himself up. And the pronouns could be either. It, it's rightly that translated either way, and it's not absolutely clear which way it should be translated. Various translations differ on it, but both agree it's either the servant or it's God. And one commentator said, Isaiah knows the Hebrew better than anybody, and he is probably writing, according to the Holy Spirit's uh, witness, in this precise way, who offers up the son, the servant? Is it the father? Yes. Is it the son? Yes. What do we say to the charge that this is cosmic child abuse? I think it's right to take this as the servant offering up himself. Hebrews 7.27 says exactly that. He offered up himself. Christ offered up himself. It's certainly true theologically. It's acceptable as a translation, but it's also one of the more important truths. We've already seen it in Isaiah 53. He was like a lamb led before his shears. He, was, he did not open his mouth. He did, not, he did not respond when his accusations were flown at him. He was not defending himself. It was his will to go to the cross. When people say the, this would be cosmic child abuse, they do not take account rightly that it was Christ's will to do the will of the Father. That it was the servant's will to be crushed. That it was his will to be brought to sorrow. Jesus died willingly in accordance with the Father's plan. He says in John 10, 17, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay my life down so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. It was the will of Christ to do the will of the Father. And it was always his will to die for us because he loves us. John 13, 1. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus said to his disciples, again in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, than that one lay down his life for his friends. In the final analysis, it was the Father's will to crush the Son and the Son's will to make His soul an offering for sin because God loves His Son and God loves His elect. 
everyone who will believe on his name with an everlasting love, with an unbreakable love. John 17, 22 and 23, the glory which you have given me, Jesus is praying to the Father, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one, I and them and you and me, and they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you have loved me. This scene is about the will of God crushing the son, putting him to grief, because God loves sinners. And you should feel that. You're one of them. If you're not one of them, then what is said next doesn't apply to you. Because this love is poured out for sinners. It's our iniquities that were placed on him. When he became the guilt offering, it was our guilt he took upon himself, not his own. It was our sin he bore, our iniquities. We've been reading that throughout the whole psalm. Third, finally, the prosperous will and servant of God. Verse 10 at the end of the verse. Notice this first phrase, he shall see his offspring. Who's this speaking of? Speaking, I believe, of Christ. Some reference, and here's another point in the verse where the pronouns are, are difficult to nail down. Some say Yahweh shall see his offspring in that sense, and evidently that's also permissible. I think it has to do with the servant seeing his offspring. And so two amazing truths are packed into this phrase. First is that we see here in this prophecy, life from the dead. It says, he shall see. And this can't merely mean in this context, and this what follows, that the servant will see when it is finished, as if Christ on the cross, he sees and he understands that he's fulfilled the will of God, and he cries out, it is finished. Because we know from what follows, that there is implied in this life for the servant. He shall see, that is the servant shall see, and then it says he, Yahweh, shall prolong his, the servant's days. That is certain. Yahweh shall prolong his days, the servant's days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. There's a sense of that ongoing prosperity here. I take these things to mean that the Lord shall prolong the days of his servant, Alec Motyer says the phrase, prolong his days, only ever occurs when speaking of one who died in this text, in all of the Hebrew, in all of the Hebrew Old Testament. That's the paradox. How can it speak of prolonging the day of the one who died? It can because Christ arose. You see, you can't come back to this text apart from Christ and his fulfillment of it and figure it out. This is the wisdom of God here. This is the cross. This is what makes the wisdom of men foolishness. This final phrase, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, speaks both to what the servant has already accomplished in doing the will of God and his ongoing office of mediator. So this psalm has come to full circle at this point. 
Remember how it began in Isaiah 52, 13 and 14? It starts with this threefold exaltation, this deification, as it were, of the servant. My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Exalted to the utmost. Yet, in verse 14, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of man. And we asked ourselves, how can this be true of the same person? How can be exalted to the, to the utmost, to the superlative? And at the same time, the next verse says that he was lower. He was like a monster in his form and his suffering. It's because in Christ it's true. The foundation of the truth that God will exalt those who humble themselves is born. It's in his hum humility that he's exalted. And that's why it's true of us. But see, our text is showing this to be now fulfilled, even though this is still prophecy. We know that this is how it happens. This is how Christ is exalted. It's because he laid down his life in accordance with the will of the Father. Carl Truman, the theologian, historian, speaking about Martin Luther's understanding of the cross and how all of this scholarly, the medieval scholarship of peering into the mysteries of God were vain because we had the cross before us. We had God's wisdom telling us that we cannot be so wise as to go up to heaven apart from his revealed will, re revealed word, and know things about him. Because the cross stands to tell us that he, his mind is too great. <laughs> and he said in regards to Luther's understanding of the cross, that the only door to resurrection is through death. The only door to resurrection is through death. And the will of God will always prosper in God's ongoing life. And here is what the will of the Lord, through the prosperous servant, has accomplished. He's accomplished our salvation. Look what he says here. He shall see his offspring. I take his offspring to mean those who were formerly the sheep that were going astray. In verse 6, the ones for whom he bore their sin, their iniquity. The one who he took on himself, their shame. Indeed, the one who in their place he bore the wrath of God. This is what the will of God has wrought. It's, it's wrought an exchange the guilt offering of the servant's soul has made us here children of God, his offspring. Our faith is such informed by Scripture that those who trust in Christ and who's, in whom Christ has given his spirit, that we are the children of God. We have been adopted according to the will of God that was fulfilled in Christ in his sacrifice. We can confidently say, you and I can confidently say here this morning, I am saved if we're trusting in Christ, if we have the Holy Spirit 
You are saved by the immutable will of God. This is where our confidence that ours is a lasting salvation lies. This is where our security lies. For the scripture says, who can resist his will? Who can say to God, what are you doing saving a sinner like me or like her or like him? The security, the surety of our salvation accords to the will of God prophesied by Isaiah and fulfilled by the Spirit, this thrice-exalted Lord Jesus Christ. As we come to the table this morning, if you are a child of God, know that you partake of Christ by faith because he offered himself once and for all time in accordance with the will of God for your eternal sonship. He was crushed in your place. He was bruised. He was put to sorrow for you. And so come and partake by faith. But some are asking, and I'll close with this. We often ask the question, what is the will of God for my life? Well, what if it looks like this? It will never look like this in order for you to win your own salvation. It was God's will that the Son be put to grief and crushed so that he would win your salvation through his suffering. But there's two things that we need to to understand from this text when we come to it. When we ask the question, what the will of God is for my life, the first application is, it is the will of God for your life that you follow Christ. That you follow Christ. Being his disciple is the means of your doing the will of God. And you are called to do the will of God. When Jesus taught us to pray, what do you say? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If you don't desire to do the will of God, you're probably not a Christian. How could you have the spirit of Christ in you and not desire to do the will of God? But to do the will of God is to follow Christ. It's to be his disciple. And that means that we hear Christ's words, which says, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross daily. It may mean that we are called to severe suffering in this life as a disciple of Christ. As I was thinking about this, I think about your suffering out there. I think about you, and I could almost name every one of you right now who are suffering to some degree or another. Don't be discouraged. What we have just read means that it is the will of God that Christ suffered for you. 
don't be surprised that it's his will that you go through suffering as well. Don't be surprised by it. We are told over and over and over again that there is a cost to following Christ. We are told over and over and over again in Scripture that in this life there will be trouble. We can name Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. But here is where we bind our hope is that yes, there will be suffering. And yes, there will be suffering because we follow Christ. But, secondly, if God so loved his infinitely valuable Son... Even while appointing him to suffer, your suffering does not mean that God's love for you has failed or will fail. Our suffering can only last for a little while because of God's will in, in his son suffering, in his son's suffering. God has promised to glorify us just as he did his servant. 1 Peter 5, 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion. That is, to him be reigning. His will be done. His reign be absolute forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that your will was done perfectly by Christ. We fail of it every week, every day. Our salvation could only come through his will, your will being accomplished perfectly through him. And yet, because of our salvation in him, we are drawn, we delight in your will. It grieves us when we don't obey it. And we know that doing your will means facing a world of sin that hates to hear thy will be done. It hates to hear that we agree with you. Lord, more and more we're going to face a world of persecution just because of our faith. I pray that we'd not be surprised. I pray that we'd bear our cross patiently, daily knowing that you have not appointed it to be our end, but you have appointed it for our resurrection. Lord, first in Christ, and so we can trust you every day. I pray that as we come to the table this morning, you would be exalted, that we would remember Christ's offering up of himself once and for all time for our salvation, that we would see in these elements this morning his work accomplished, his work satisfying your wrath on our account. In Jesus' name, amen.